This episode is sponsored by Bow Lake, the most beautiful paddle boards in the world. Visit bowlake.com and learn more. That's B-E-A-U lake.com. Bow is French for beautiful. B-E-A-U lake.com. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. My guest on The Luxury Item is one of the most highly regarded master chefs and hospitality entrepreneurs in America today. Since the beginning of his celebrated career, Charlie Palmer has received critical acclaim for his signature progressive American cuisine a style built on rambunctious flavors and unexpected combinations with a deep and lasting infusion of classical French technique. Palmer is best known for Oriole, his flagship restaurant in New York City, which was situated in a historic townhouse off Manhattan's Madison Avenue, and it earned 13 Michelin stars and two James Beard Awards. Over the years, Charlie Palmer has received over 20 Michelin stars and currently consults 13 food and beverage outlets through the Charlie Palmer Collective. Most recently, he has launched Appalachian, a new hotel company aimed at sharing the language of food and embracing what it means to be authentically local. Charlie Palmer is also author of six cookbooks and is the recipient of numerous awards, including Best Chef New York City. He has also been inducted into the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America. Food and Wine Magazine has said of Charlie, Palmer is widely regarded by food lovers as a pioneer who realized decades ago that there was a strong demand for great food in America, not necessarily French. Welcome to the luxury item, Charlie. Nice to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have you. So I want to start by sort of talking about the little walk down memory lane you had last month here in New York City. Uh, your iconic fine dining restaurant, Oriel, which has been open for 32 years in, in New York City location and essentially launched you to culinary stardom, made a special brief reappearance in the form of a three-day pop-up experience at the Knickerbocker Hotel. What was that whole thing about? Yeah, well, it really was like kind of revisiting, um, you know, Oriel um, over this, the last 30 years of inception and and probably most importantly, bringing together some of those some of those uh, would have now become iconic chefs that have been part of Oriole, um, you know, at different, very different times of, you know, its iteration. So, you know, it was a lot of fun to bring a lot of our chefs together, Chris Engel and, and Marcus and uh, Brian Voltaggio and uh, Richard Leach, who was the original pastry chef when we opened on 61st street uh, back in 1988 Oh yeah. And it was really fun. And, you know, we put the, I let the, you know, we collectively decided what the menus were going to be for the three nights um, and kind of showcasing a lot of dishes that originated at, at Oriole and the original, original Oriole, but also kind of uh, looking to the future and, and adjusting and tweaking and, you know, kind of, doing a, an updated version of some of those dishes too together, you know, so it was a lot of fun in planning it. And, you know, and I, and I have to say it was, it was certainly a lot of work doing it, but it was, it was great to have everybody back together and fun. And, you know, the, the people, the guests that came, um, obviously it was to support city meals on wheels, which I've been uh, on the board of directors of city meals on wheels for 24 years, I believe. Right. 
Um, so that was fun. And we raised some, some money for a great charity and, and had a good time doing it and, and got to get together, uh, you know, with, with some of the guys and gals from the past. So it was, so, it was really a lot of fun. Yeah. I want to give my listeners some context here. So, you know, Charlie was 28 when he first opened his first restaurant, Oriole in New York city in 1988, it earned several awards, including 13 Michelin stars, two James Beard awards, um, before unfortunately closing its doors to COVID in 2020, Oriole was one of the city's most popular and revered restaurants. And prior to launching Oriole in your early 20s, you already had a warm spot in the hearts of New Yorkers as executive chef at the River Cafe here in Brooklyn. So was striking out on your own always part of the master plan? Yeah, it really was. And, and um, you know, I was very, very I, am, I am still very close with Buzzy O'Keefe that owns the River Cafe. Mm-hmm. And after being the executive chef there for, well, for a little over four years, and uh, I became the, ex- the, the, the chef of the River Cafe when I was 23. So at a, at a very young, <laughs> right. young age. Um, but my, you know, my aspirations and goals were always to, to own my own restaurant and, and take it, you know, take it from there. But, you know, the river cafe was an amazing platform and stage to, to be able to, you know, practice your craft on and, uh, and a great stepping stone. But, uh, I always tell Buzzy, uh, you know, in the future that, I am the heir apparent for the River Cafe. Um, <laughs> if he's ever, <laughs> if he's ever going to be passing it on and stuff, so, uh, but a great spot. But yeah, opening Oriole in 1988, it was, you know, I was basically a, a young kid with a good amount of experience because I'd been traveled in Europe and worked in France, worked in Belgium, uh, you know, and uh, and of course worked uh, at a number of places in New York City and then became the chef at the river cafe when I was 23. So. Yeah. And the river cafe was also known for turning out a string of America's most highly visible chefs. Why do so many top chefs have a direct connection to the river cafe? Well, I, you know, I think it started with Larry Forgione. Uh, it did start with Larry Forgione when he, you know, he started his, uh, his basically his adult career, I should say as a chef there. And, you know, and it, it was an, you know, an incubator in a lot of ways for a lot of young talent, especially American chefs coming out of the the CIA and, and being nurtured and stuff. So, and that's, it, it continues today. You know, I think, you know, Brad Steelman is, you know, very close friend and chef that's been there now for almost 20 years, but the river cafe is like I say, was, was, and still is kind of an incubator for culinary talent um and front of the house talent too over um over many many years and it was at Oriole that your signature style really emerged i was reading an article where you were commenting on your culinary philosophy and you said you know i realized that american cuisine was just in its infancy and i spent a lot of time thinking about what the idea of american cooking really meant to me as a chef so was that the philosophy you took when you started Oriole and um, and how did you translate that into its menu? Well, I, you know, it really started at the River Cafe. And, you know, when I opened, when I first opened Oriole, it really was my more personal kind of expression of what I felt and believed was uh, an emerging and, uh, and growing uh, cuisine 
but you know, at the time, I always I was very was very cautious of labeling it American cuisine because at that time, you know, and still today, I mean, I think a cuisine is something that develops over hundreds of years, you know, and I think my belief is that when I branded it progressive American cooking was really a better description of what, you know, what we were practicing, what I was practicing and our team and what I was teaching to our, our fellow people, chefs and coming up. But I think that a lot of that really has to do with the fact that, you know, what we do today and what will someday could be called or deemed American cuisine is really happening. And it, it, it's what's the culmination of what a lot of us American chefs, but also, you know, European chefs that have come and made made the U.S. their homes um, will collectively do over over the next, you know, decades uh, that could really be called a cuisine. But that's why I always I always called it progressive American cooking and still do, because, you know, every time you step in the kitchen, it seems like, you know, we're, we're, we're moving forward. There's there's this kind of momentum that we're creating new things. We're pulling inspiration from all types of different cuisine from around the world but we're applying that to a very american kind of brand of of of, uh, of cuisine so what was the overall vibe that you wanted to give off in the restaurant at oriel in the beginning um you know i really wanted oriel to be and i described it all the time as uh the american lutess mm. you know and some people you know some people maybe remember Lutes or, or remember the, the history of Lutes. But at that time, um, at least in my mind, uh, Lutes was the, you know, one of the most important and, you know, probably the best French restaurant in New York at that time. Right. You know, that's where it was in a townhouse. I wanted Oriole to be in a townhouse. Uh, it, it was in a specific location. I wanted Oriole to be in a specific location. You know, when I opened Oriel, uh, my business partner, I said, we need to find a, a townhouse uh, between 59th and 72nd, between 5th and, and uh, Park, or at least 5th and Lex. And, uh, and, that's, and that's why we found this. So, <laughs> you know. So when starting out, some well-known chefs have said they only cared about the food early on and eventually developed a customer service focus. What about you? You know, from the time we op I opened the restaurant and became, in, in essence, became a restaurant tour as well as a chef, you know, it's clearly to me about the experience, the overall experience. And, you know, we, we can all say that it's only about the food and, you know, like it to be only about the food. But, you know, the reality is, you know, it's, it's creating that really, you know, you know, kind of really whole holistic experience of dining. You know, that's why I admire like Danny Myers so much. And, you know, someone like that, that would, it, who isn't a chef, but, you know, certainly understands not only fine food and, and, and great cooking, but also understands the hospitality, you know, factor that, 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 that you need to have to be great. So almost 10 years after opening Oriole, you followed up with Astra, a cafe event space in Manhattan in 1997. After that, you started planting your flag across the land with a collection of award-winning bars and restaurants here in New York City, Las Vegas, Washington, D.C., and beyond. What have been some of the biggest challenges in managing and growing your brand footprint? 
Well, I mean, it, I think it all always boils down to the the talent, the people, you know, and 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 building team a team or teams of people that really understand the philosophy first and foremost, um, but then also really have the passion to do what you know we all want you know want to be you know to have to be great, and I think you know uh, you know you can. You can build amazing facilities and, you know, $10 million restaurants, you know, with all kinds of, you know, amazing attributes. But at the end of the day, it's about the people that are practicing the craft in that, you know, in that space or in that restaurant. And in 2020, COVID restrictions grounded the nation's bustling restaurant industry to a halt. And I know that Charlie Palmer Collective took a hit as well. How did it force you to rethink your business model? Uh, you know, we, honestly, we totally, you know, peeled it all back and, and, and started from be from the beginning, you know, in every relationship, in every partnership that we have, um, every, you know, how, how we do things, why we do things a certain way. Um, our business model in general, I think was what our biggest, my biggest concern was, you know, we have this, you know, these amazing teams of people and crews and crews and, and, and I feel first and foremost, I felt responsible for, you know, the livelihood of, you know, literally hundreds of people, you know, that are, that are loyal, loyal to not only loyal to me, but loyal to our group and, and our restaurant company. And, uh, you know, from that, you make, you make some very swift and, you know, hopefully, you know, good decisions about how we can take care of our people first and foremost. And then secondly, it was really about, you know, what do we want to do going forward? Because, you know, it's, it's very easy in our business and you see this all the time um, for just to keep doing more and more and, you know, you know, and then at some point you kind of ask yourself, is, is this what we really want to do? Um, and is this what I really want to do? Because at the end of the day, um, we've been ex extremely successful and we really don't need to do anything that we are not totally in love with and, and you know, fascinated about or excited about and you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, that's that, that that was kind of the simple rule coming out of the pandemic that, you know, let's let's give a lot more thought into what we really want to be as a company and what I want to do as a person. Um, and I think that happened to, you know, that happened to a lot of people. They kind of reassessed their life in general and said, you know, am I really doing what I love or, or am I doing it because I got caught up into the success of things or, or what, whatever, whatever that may be. Did you make changes to your menu offerings to align with new customer needs coming out of COVID? Oh yes, yeah. We 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 tweaked, adjusted, um, rethought basically everything from the ground up, um, and also thought, you know, probably most importantly, like what what is it that people are going to dining clientele are going to want to see going forward? You know, I've again, I've I've had the great good fortune of doing doing and creating menus exactly what i felt like and very fortunate the fact that you know not maybe not everyone but most people loved it you know so but 
spending more time thinking what is you know what is the dining public really yearning for or wanting wanting to see you know and you can't be everything to everyone that's that's one thing that we uh, are very conscious of too uh but yeah we yeah we've we've rethought everything and i think in a, in a, in a really good way and become a lot more focused on you know what our goals are what we're trying to accomplish employee retention has been an, an ongoing issue so did you put in new programs as well huge um, huge uh, kind of more emphasis i think we were you know i don't think we were always i think great uh employers um and partners with people like i always say with people say oh you know once when, when someone says oh i work for charlie palmer it's like no no we work together you know no one works for me we work we work together on a common goal you know whether that's in the kitchen in the front of the house and the business side of things we work together because i i don't i don't think anybody can deny that there's there's no one person that's that's creating success it's it's a team of people it's it's like-minded it's uh you know everybody brings you know really huge attributes to what we do um you know no matter what right down to the the dishwasher that's you know making sure that our our china is the cleanest in the world <laughs> you know it's it's really really rethinking that you know and then, and then also putting me in a position putting us in a position where we you know we really want to make sure that we're uh you know creating the an ambassador program which we always had in a loose way but creating something that really honored the fact that those those people that were really stepping up and really really taking the extra step and really doing that thing were not only rewarded for that but you know recognized for that you know as in our group um you know and and rightfully so you know why do you think you've had such staying power in the dining scene when other chefs and trendy restaurants just come and go well i think a lot of it has to do with um what we what we do as a as a team appeals to a large audience um, and I think sometimes taking your ego out of the, you know, out of the equation that being practical about what we do, uh, especially from a menu side of things, you know, I mean, I've always felt that, you know, yes, you know, some, you know, people will pay a lot of money for, you know, for a dining experience or whatever, but I think it's really important that people feel like they get value for what it is, no matter how expensive it is. You know, if that if it's a $200 bottle of wine, if they can walk away saying like, yes, it was expensive, it was an expensive bottle of wine, but it was amazing and it was great. And same thing with a dinner, if they're paying, you know, $150 check average, if they can, you know, walk away saying like, wow, that was that was really, really, really good and amazing and delicious and everything about it. Yes, it wasn't inexpensive, but that's that's what I've always felt is a simple rule that we have to provide value. We'll be right back after a quick break with more of my conversation with Charlie Palmer. beautiful paddle boards in the world. Bow Lake. The water is calling. We're back with more from Charlie Palmer. 
And it seems that food has become part of the zeitgeist and so many people are demanding better food and not just in restaurants. I mean, everywhere. I think all those food shows on TV have a lot to do with it. What do you think has changed when it comes to the way people view food? I wouldn't say it's a changed. I, I would say it is it's evolved. And I'm a firm believer that the the more knowledgeable um that people that that guests are, that people diners are about ingredients, about who's doing what, and you know food education in general, whether it's you know food television, whatever. It's that's the greatest thing that can happen to us as practitioners of of dining, you know, and, and fine, fine dining and, and restaurants and chefs, because it wasn't so long ago where what a good example would be that, you know, people were, were accepting, you know, frozen scallops, you know, uh, seared off and whatever, and, and not knowing the difference between something that was, you know, amazing quality and just okay quality, or even not great quality. Now, nowadays, it's unacceptable. Like, you know, I can remember in my early days of cooking, you know, we, you know, the Lakot Basque, you know, every Dover sole that we sold was frozen Dover sole, you know, and then during that time when we started to getting, we started getting fresh Dover sole, it was like amazing to me, but I couldn't honestly say that the dining public knew the difference or cared, honestly. Right. No, that's not the case because I think in in general the you know the level of knowledge and experience that people have um you know is 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 really high and you know the expectation is higher too so they expect quality and if and they're willing to pay for it but they you know they expect high quality ingredients first and foremost and a, and a high level of cook of level of cooking also Last year, you and Four Seasons Hotel veteran Christopher Hunsberger announced the launch of a culinary-focused hotel brand, Appalachian. And Appalachian means to give a name to a place. The idea behind Appalachian is to cultivate community around food and the role it plays in bringing people together while exuding, as you call it, approachable luxury in accommodations and service. You've known Chris over the past couple of decades and have worked together on a few occasions how did the idea for this unique hotel brand come about and why was the opportunity exciting for you in the arc of your brand? Well, first of all, you know, there is no one uh, of Chris's caliber in my mind that, you know, exudes hospitality more than he does. And I think when you think about the hotel experience or hospitality experience, you know, what we're trying to do and what we will do with Appalachian is create something that really doesn't exist today that really brings uh, the people and the craft and everything that happens in a very specific and, you know, amazing destination, whether it's Healdsburg, California, or Sun Valley, Idaho, or Pacific Grove, Monterey, uh, everything that's happening in those places, whether it's food, wine, craft, um, just the experience of the community that exists around in that area allows, the, that will allow our guests that comes to visit us at an Appalachian property, the chance to experience what it's like to live there, what it's like to be in these very special locations. 
even if for, even if it's for two nights or, or or one day, for instance, you know, it's it's and they bring in all all the all the things that they would care or not care about um, that happen in that place, and and rub shoulders with locals because everything we do, uh, hotel wise, is going to be focused on bringing the local community into the hotel, into the property. Um, and giving our guests that are transient guests or guests from the other part of a, the, the country or the world uh, the chance to rub shoulders and talk and, you know, experience what it's like to be in a place like Sun Valley, Idaho, you know, very special places. Relation is about is bringing people together, bringing community together and and, and doing it in a way that and that's what we say, refer to it as, you know, um, uh, you know, not not five star, over the top, uh, formal luxury, but you know, you know, luxury on a level that is really comfortable. You know, good service, great service, personal service, um, and the very best of what's happening in that special place. And how are you bringing your signature style to the cuisine? Well, each one of each one of these locations will have a very specific uh, cuisine and and restaurant component, um, or restaurants in some cases, both a restaurant, rooftop bar, um, in the in the sense of Hillsburg, the most I think uh, you know crazy great catering facility that exists in Sonoma County or maybe broader, um, but very specific to, to Hillsburg. And very specific to Sonoma County, you know, the, the cuisine, the restaurant itself will have a very focused uh, uh, focus on where we are and the ingredients, obviously, that grow there and the winemakers that, that, that are next door and that kind of thing. So the first four locales to get the Appalachian treatment will, will be Healdsburg, California in 2024, followed by Sun Valley, Idaho in 25, and Petaluma and Pacific Grove, California in 26. Um, with more down the line, I'm sure, you know, what criteria is needed for a location to be considered as a possible destination? Very unique and 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 places that Chris and I want to go, quite honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's, that, sounds, that sounds a bit selfish, but we're you know, we're interested in in building a uh, a company that has a number of very unique destinations and places, but we're not you know we're not looking to build you know a hundred units. So we're not we're we're not we're not looking at a hundred hotels here. We're looking at over the next ten years, maybe you know eight or nine or ten. So very limited. It's got to be a very special place for us to consider it. You know. So you said in an interview that great dining experiences are fueled by and connected to our relationships with farmers, vintners, and the complete culinary ecosystem. You know, this connection to the community will allow us to provide a truly authentic, localized experience. So how do you go about building trust with the local farmers and growers and makers once you identify a location? Well, I've, I've I've had the good fortune of doing it for 20 years here in Healdsburg now. So and I think that, you know, in a lot of ways that gives me entree that no matter where we go, um, that they know those makers, those growers, those people that are doing stuff that we're serious about this and we're serious about being great local partners with them. So 
for me, you know, I, again, you know, that in a lot of ways, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of those people come to me to say, Hey, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing something very special or in some sense come to me as like, what, what, what can I grow for you? You know, what can I grow for you that you would, you know, you would love to buy from me, but also, you know, more importantly, be part of what you're doing there in that location. Uh, and that's a great, great situation to be in. You know, I've had, again, I feel very fortunate that yeah, I've built these relationships in now a couple of different great locations and, you know, anything new kind of comes, comes naturally, I guess you would say. So I want to talk to you about the creative process. What is the process for creating a new dish, you know, evaluating progress and coming up with ideas? Well, I think it it, it depends on the situation. Like a lot of things, uh, like dishes, for instance, like uh, we just did a wine dinner last night, you know, and and I wanted to create specific dishes for those wines. So that's one thing I've learned over the years of being, you know, a big part in wine country and I make wine and, you know, I have, you know, partners in the wine business and I grow, I grow grapes, you know, I, I do it all. And, but it becomes very apparent to me from a chef's point of view that when you're doing, for instance, a wine dinner, like we did last night, first and foremost, it's about the wine. It starts with the wine. Because that wine is has been created, it's been in the bottle, it's been aged for whatever amount of time. That wine is not changing. Whereas as a chef, I can go into the kitchen and say, okay, if I really understand this wine, the taste profile, the acidity, whatever, whatever attributes it has, I can go in the kitchen and say, like, in my mind, say, this would be great with this. And then you can start with an ingredient and create a dish. But then you can also tweak, um, you know, you could add a little bit of acid or, you know, a little bit more uh, seasoning or salt or a nuance to the dish to make it a perfect pairing with that wine. So that's what we call, you know, creating, creating dishes specifically for wines. You know, if I'm creating a, you know, creating new dishes for the menu, for instance, which we're just starting at like a dry creek kitchen, we're just, you know, every, every month, basically we change dishes. It starts with ingredients, you know, i.e. we're getting these incredible, uh, we have access to these incredible, um, you know, German potato, German um, tomatoes, black tomatoes. I forget the name of them, but once we start getting those, I know what I want to do with them or there's many things you can do with them, but it's kind of like, you know, uh, it starts with a single ingredient or a couple of ingredients. And then the dishes evolves from there. Um, but it's really, you know, centric on, you know, when, I, when I'm getting these amazing quail from this, this, uh, this, this guy that raises quail and he, he does it in patches. So when I'm getting quail, I know what I'm going to do with those quail. I mean, there's many different things you can do with it, but it starts with that ingredient. I want to get your thoughts on uh, fine dining. A lot has been talked about the future of high-end dining the past 20 years have witnessed a supernova of haute cuisine, you know, an explosion of tasting menus and chef tables. You know, the best restaurants have gone from, you know, being in the background to the foreground of the cosmopolitan experience becoming travel destinations in their own right. Top chefs are more, you know, more than mere celebrities. They've become these cultural figures. 
Then the news broke at the beginning of the year that the world-class Danish restaurant Noma was closing its doors. Its founder said the pressure of producing high-concept dishes on a daily basis, of reinventing his menu again and again, you know, doing all, you know, all the while fairly compensating a staff of nearly 100 people just wasn't sustainable. And around the same time, you know, the horror comedy movie The Menu came out, and it spends most of its run skewering expensive restaurants and wealthy diners. Some say the era of conspicuous decadence and fine dining is over. Others just say the model is just flawed. What's your take on the future of fine dining? Well, you know, I don't think, I mean, fine dining is a big term, right? Um, you know, there's, I believe, many different levels of fine dining. And I think, you know, take you know, take Noma for as an example. I think what Renee has done with Noma over the years, and and also understanding the history of Noma, and you know how it really started is a much smaller, more focused, um, you know, concept. I mean, certainly fine dining, but you know, evolved into something that's major. And you know, I speak a bit from experience. My my youngest son just spent uh, six months at Noma, you know, uh, a few months ago. He's a chef, by the way. Okay. Uh, and in and, and dining at Noma, you know, an amazing dining experience. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think we have to all evolve, you know. So will fine dining go away? Absolutely not. I, I don't believe that, you know, in any anything. It, will, will it evolve over time? Absolutely. I think it is a good example is uh, uh, when when you talk about how much labor is involved in fine dining and the procedure or the the progression or the the service itself that kind of thing. You know, an interesting example um, that I thought recently that I saw I won't name where it was, but is at the beginning of the the meal or the progression of dishes because it, you know it was many many dishes. Um, you were, you as the guest were giving, given a knife roll, basically a leather, a leather knife roll with probably 25 different service pieces, you know, three forks, two knives or three knives, uh, chopsticks, uh, you know, different types of spoons all in one, in, in one delivery. So here, here's everything you need for your dining experience tonight. You choose as the guest what you want to use for what dish. But if you imagine as a restaurateur and someone that thinks about, you know, the steps of service and how much labor is involved, that 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 eliminated, I don't know how many man hours of work um, for a, a server that was going to reset the table or reset for each course or that whatever it is. But I just thought that was an interesting you know, an interesting take on it, you know, certainly still very fine dining for sure, but a very interesting take on it and eliminating some of the labor that's involved in an experience like that. So was it, did you think it had to do with the labor or it was a message that the chef was sending? I think both. I think both. But at the end of the day, um, it certainly, it certainly helped the labor side because that, right. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Like when Renee says he has a, he has a hundred people in the kitchen, he's, he's not kidding. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, this, and it, and it also, I think from a labor standpoint, it's the style uh, of what we do that needs to be 
thought about too. Like you know, think about the style of what you do. If it's if it's what we call very you know very much tweezer food and every every ingredient it demands a lot of labor. You know, um, if it's less formal in presentation, um, it can be done and accomplished with a lot less labor or, or at least less labor. I'm not saying a lot less. Well, speaking of the horrors of fine dining and pop culture, the TV show The Bear wastes no time introducing you to the chaotic world in which it exists, immediately plunging you headfirst into, you know, its claustrophobic center of a restaurant kitchen and cutthroat food scene, you know, a militaristic regimen hierarchy, you know, a lot of negativity, anger, throwing pans around, that sort of thing. Is that a pretty accurate portrayal of life in a restaurant kitchen and the emotional and physical cost that comes with it? You know, I don't believe that. Um, there may have been a time where we could have said, yeah, that's what kitchens are like or high-end kitchens are like. But um, it, it's, it, at least in my estimation, it's not anything like that anymore. Yeah. Is there is there pressure in kitchens? Of course. You know, is there... Uh, you know, is, is there a sense of, you know, excellence takes, you know, regiment for sure. But, you know, I think at the same time, we all can agree that, you know, what, what we're doing here is we're cooking and we're creating great food and, you know, and, and we're, and we're hopefully doing it with a lot of passion and joy. And, but at the end of the day, we're not saving lives. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not surgeons. We're not saving lives. We're not, we're not in that pressure cooker, you know, and I think we have to think of it that way. What we're, what, what we need to be doing is trying to give people joy. And if we can't do that without, you know, throwing pots and pans and getting angry at people, then uh, we probably shouldn't be in this business, you know? So you were mentioning early on about your uh, your affiliation with uh, City Meals on Wheels, and you've been involved with City Meals for over two decades. And for listeners, City Meals on Wheels is a nonprofit that prepares and delivers food to homebound New Yorkers, and I know they do more. Can you talk about your charity work there? Yeah, I mean, I, I became, I, I got involved with City Meals on Wheels, like I said, 24 years ago. And obviously, because of the relationship between, you know, chefs and food and food that's, you know, really nourishing uh, someone that may not eat that day otherwise. Um, but, you know, it, it's it, it's an incredible charity that that really not only provides, you know, nourishment and, and, and real great food to a number of thousands, thousands of homebound el elderly people in New York City and the and the five boroughs, but really is in some ways a lifeline for those those people. That the, the, that delivery sometimes is the only person or, or you know contact that that person's going to have in a day. Um, and and there's been literally hundreds of examples of. That person, the delivery person for City Meals on Wheels, uh, delivering meals to someone that has, you know, alerted them to a problem or someone is, you know, not in great health. Obviously, a lot of these people are, are because they're homebound, um, they're physically not in great shape. And, you know, it's, 
it's just something that's amazingly executed by a group of people that you know are, are, are second to none i've i've never seen anything like it the commitment to taking care of people the commitment of providing them with some some really great you know nourishment and great food right. um and uh yeah I've, my my family's been involved with it with me when my when my four sons were small i i would i would make them go with me on meal deliveries just so they understood you know that yeah this is something that's important and maybe they're not involved in city meals but they should be involved in giving back in some way and uh you know i think that's in, in their adult lives now we've se i've seen that really really come true and ring true for them and i'm very proud of that you know that they're involved in charity work and they give back. They understand it, you know. So, Charlie, you know, you have status as a world-renowned top chef, restaurateur, hotel owner, cookbook author, numerous award, awards and recognitions, and that sounds about as good as it gets. So what continues to challenge you? Uh, challenge? Uh, having enough time to travel and experience things that I haven't experienced yet. <laughs> I do. I do my fair share of that. I mean, I can't complain. That's for sure. But um, my, Lisa and I, Lisa, my wife and I, we, we travel a lot to, uh, we're actually traveling tomorrow. We're going to uh, Rioja to oh, visit nice. some friends that have started a, a music festival in, in Rioja. And I haven't been to Madrid in a couple of years. So we're going to spend a couple of days in Madrid and, of course, uh, explore the food scene and Santa Market San Miguel and all the great things that happen there. So, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed. I have, you know, four sons that are uh, one is an actual chef, so he's in the business. My oldest son Cortland is is working we with me now on the on the business side of things, um, but he's not not afraid to step up and uh you know serve serve a guest in the restaurants uh work with me in the kitchen you know he's not a chef but he can certainly he knows his way around the kitchen all my sons do um you know and i'm looking forward to to a, a grandchild here soon and oh uh, great why so so charlie my final question is the luxury item question which i ask all my guests so if you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one single luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service to call someone to get you off that island. It's you, just you, lots of sand, lots of palm trees, lots of ocean. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? That's an interesting question. I think... At the moment, I'm infatuated with this uh, uh, Palmer & Co. champagne that I'm doing a special cuvee with. Uh, it's a champagne house out of out of out of Reims in France. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'd love to have a case of that with me, just in case. That's a good one. You have to obviously take little sips of it. Yeah, but not only that, it'll go great with all the fish I'll, I'll figure out. <laughs> You'll catch, uh, it, you know, and and hopefully there's some, you know, some growth on the island that uh, we can harvest some veggies or whatever it is. Um, but I think, uh, I think, I think champagne, and especially this one, is a great pairing for many, many different things. 
Charlie Palmer, master chef, hospitality entrepreneur, and author. Thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.